Good morning again in the name of Jesus Christ. It is a, it's been a couple months since I've preached and I can tell you it is a great joy to be able to preach again. I really miss putting before you the word of God. So I'm very excited to bring it, to bring the word today. Well, as you know, the way we preach the sermon series here is that we take a whole book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse. And that's also the way, basically, where we choose, or I find out, which verse I'm going to preach. And so you can understand my surprise when I realize that being a man who's been married a month and a half in God's providence, <laughs> it fell upon me that the first text I was going to preach begins with this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And it was also very weighty. I didn't specifically just choose this. Even seriously, more seriously, I realized even just looking at the broad concepts of submission, even specifically this first part, I naturally don't like this. I naturally want to push back on it. And I think it's the same for most of you. I realized, I think for... I think when I look at all the world, yes, all the world has this problem. It was a result of the fall. I think it says it in Genesis 3. Your desire will be for your husband's position. He will rule over you. A part of the fall was not liking the concept of submission. But then even beyond that, I think in the society that we live in, we naturally very much dislike submission. We are just bathed in individuality and individualism. Now hear me well, I think some individuality is good, but I think that we have become so drunk on the concept of individualism that we stagger through texts like this. And I was challenged, I had to repent of this in my own heart, not liking such a concept. And it was really striking to me as I started doing cross-references, I went through all the passages in scriptures that talked about submission, and even specifically, wives submitting to the husband's, and it was stunning to me that there was about five, at least five very clear passages that, that word it in this way. That's not even mentioning all the other places talking about submission. And so my question went, what is it about this concept that to the Holy Spirit inspired men, they saw as an overflow and an application of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most strikingly to me though, 1 Peter 3, where that this command is found, was written to persecuted believers. Why was Peter writing to persecuted believers having as one of his applications, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord? Let me tell you, if I'm writing a letter to some Chinese persecuted believers or to Iran, the first thing on my mind is not submit to your husbands. But I just think there's something to this concept of submission and even to the spheres of authority that God has placed within home and life that is so important for us to grasp. And so my prayer is that we can grasp it and see the beauty of God's word and submit to what he has said. So let me let me pray for that and then I'll dive in. Father in heaven, we love your word. And we love what you have said. Forgive us when our culture has a struggle to love these things. 
and forgive our hearts for not just fully always wanting to submit. Well, we long to submit to your way. We long to put on Christ in our submission to one another and in the realms of authority you have given us. And Father, today I pray that you would give me words to speak these heavy truths well. Lord, I feel that there are so many applications and specifics on this subject that I can't touch. So I pray, I pray that you would take these five loaves and two fish that I'm bringing before your people and before you and multiply them today. Lord, speak through me, I pray, in the powerful name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I also do think there's aspects of submission that we really... We just don't really understand. Maybe the term has become somewhat obscure. And so what I think I'm going to do first is give a very broad view of submission within scriptures. So just give a very broad overview of submission in scriptures as I work towards the specific definition that I think we're called, that wives are called to, and then everyone's called to throughout the Bible. So the first one, obviously the first sphere of authority in submission is everyone, every human is called to submit to the authority of God. God's jurisdiction is over the whole world. It is over the whole universe. Anyone, every governor, every husband, every elder of the church is called to submit to the authority of God. And he has expressed that authority in his word with the moral law that he has given us. And one great thing that we must process is since God's jurisdiction is over the whole world, he is also the judge then of whether or not we follow this. And the Bible teaches that if we do not follow God's jurisdiction, if we do not submit to God's holy word, then we will be in danger. No, we will receive punishment in the fires of hell. Now some of you, some people may be tempted to say this, look, I've kept the law of God, I've submitted to God. And I want to ask you this. Do you know that this is God's God's holy breathed word? You've read through this whole book and submitted with perfection to every law within here? I struggle to believe that. And I know it's not true because even and even James says, if you commit keep the whole law yet stumble at one point, you're guilty of all. Literally before God, if you fail in just one of the commandments in this book, you are guilty of all. Because God's jurisdiction is so pure but the reason I can stand before you today the reason I greeted you in the name of Christ the reason I can even stand here as someone who has not myself kept every command with perfection in this word is because there was one who not only has read the book but he was a part of writing the book And he did keep every command in here with perfection. The Lord Jesus Christ. And then he went, amen. (laughs) And he went to the cross on Calvary and there he died upon that cross as the perfect sacrifice taking upon him the punishment that you should have received for not submitting to this book and to God's word. And he rose again three days later from a grave showing that he had conquered sin, showing that he had conquered death and he sit and he is seated at the right hand of God forevermore. 
offering salvation. And he said this, if you repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. Hear me today. If you repent and believe the gospel, you will be judged. Not upon the basis of how well you kept this book, but upon the basis of how well Christ kept the book. Come to Christ in salvation. Submit to Him. Submit to His Lordship. Submit to His salvation that He offers. And to all the believers in here today, I say, let us build our understanding of the coming text off of this. Let us realize that we are obeying Christ as an overflow of what He has done. That we are not, that Daniel and all of you are not going to be judged upon how well you obey this text if you are in Christ. But we'll do it as an overflow of joy filled by the Spirit to the glory of Him. So my main question on that, have you submitted to God? Have you submitted to the jurisdiction of Christ? And so God, who has all the authority, all the jurisdiction, has also given realms of authority to others. First one I'll mention is the government. Romans 13.1, let me put a text on this. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed from God. In other words, that the authority that the government has is literally given by God. You feel the weight of that? I think we should think very carefully when we are processing about regulations and authorities that the government has given, whether traffic laws or building laws or anything they have put forth because they have God behind them. Of course, we see the nuance that if they try to tell us that we can do, we have to do something that is against God. Let's say they say we couldn't preach the Bible, as happens in many countries, or we couldn't practice the Lord's Supper. We would say, no, you have stepped out. Since your authority is from God and you are against God in this command, you have stepped out from the jurisdiction that God has given you. We cannot submit to that. Let me just ask some questions. What is your heart response when you are told by some told to do something by the government? How about this? Is it obvious to the world and to those around you in the way you speak about your leaders and governments that though you may disagree with them, you respect them? Do we pray for our leaders? Scripture calls us to pray for our leaders. Brothers and sisters, I hope we pray for our leaders. The principle I've been convicted to live out of is my right to speak in disagreement with my leaders is mostly earned by my time in prayer for them. And so God, let us, God has called us, let us submit, let us speak respectfully about them. Let us pray for them. Another jurisdiction that God has given is the church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Peter talks of how the elders are the under shepherds given authority by Christ to shepherd the flock of God. Do our actions, do our words showcase 
that we submit to the elders, that we submit to the authority that God has given here. An application that I have personally found helpful is being challenged, do I seek counsel from those whom God has placed in spiritual authority over me, seeing the role of shepherd and caring for my souls that he has placed them in? So in summary of those first three points, God has authority over all the world. From that authority, he has granted some to the government and he has granted some to the church. And now we come to our specific text today and to put a main point on this, submission to God is expressed in submission in the home. Submission to God is seen in submission in the home. First place Paul goes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, before I give a very specific definition, I'm working towards there, I think it'd be helpful to look at the breadth of what Scripture teaches on the concept, this concept here. Wives, submit to the husbands. And I think there's three main places that Paul roots this idea. And I think these are very central for our grasps of the concept. First place, that Paul roots it, 1 Corinthians 11.3, he roots it in the Trinity. He roots wives submitting to the husband in the Trinity. Listen to this. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Do you see that parallel? Within the Trinity itself, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all equal in being, but they have distinct roles. Christ himself says, I submit to the Father, and Christ sends the Spirit. By implication, the Spirit submits to him. This is the parallel that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 11.3. That the role that the relationship that man and wife has is that they are totally equal in being, but God has designed them as a reflection of the Trinity with a distinction in, per, in roles. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God the Father. Number two, he roots it in creation. 2 Timothy 2.10. This is more speaking within the church context and elders. But he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach her to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So after pointing to the Trinity in 1 Corinthians, he points to the creation order. Look, in the way that God created man and woman by creating man first, he is, God is making the point that there is a distinction in roles here. And to me it made sense that man who was made to be in the image of God, to reflect God to the world, would have been created by God in such a way with the distinction in roles that would reflect the creator they are made to image. They were created in such a way with a distinction in roles to reflect the distinction in roles seen in the Trinity as a picture of God. Number three, perhaps most famously, Ephesians 5, 23 through 24, after talking about the concept that all are called to submit in a sense to each other, he says it is a picture of the church's submission then to Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their husbands in everything. He roots it in the Trinity. He roots it in creation. And then he says, look, even in the very order of the church, there is this God-ordained picture that it is a picture of. The wife submitting to the husband, the distinction in roles, showcases the church's submission to Christ. Makes a pretty mighty foundation. Now as I keep going, I, I listened to a sermon on John, by John Piper on this point. And he did this, and I found it very helpful, so I want to do it for you as well. Basically, working through, okay, so what it is not. I feel like we in this world really have a very negative view of submission. But I want to put some categories around what it is not, and then I'll define what it is. So one, it does not mean you have to just submit to everything intellectually. Or in other words, you can't think for yourself. Use Piper's word. It doesn't mean you leave your brains at the altar. First Peter 3 puts it this way. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. Follow the logic here. The husband is an unbeliever, but Paul still calls them to be submissive. If it is lawful before God and actually good before God to be a Christian when your husband is not, the implication is that you can have a completely different worldview, a completely different way of thinking from your husband and still be submissive. Submission does not mean, does not mean you don't think for yourself. I think submission also does not mean that there, that a wife or the woman is less capable or even less spiritual. Some of you have unbelieving husbands. We know you are further on in the faith than your husband. Or even intellectually. Many women are more capable intellectually than many men. That's obvious, I think, to most of us. <laughs> it is a reflection it does not mean they're inferior, but it is still a reflection of God's order in himself and in creation. Th- third point on this, it does not mean you follow them into sin. It does not mean you follow them into sin. Again, like I made the point on the government aspect. As soon as a government puts you against God, it is out of their jurisdiction. If the husband is trying to take you in leadership and lead you into something that is against God, that is no longer his jurisdiction. You cannot follow him there. Now I pray for all of you who are in such a situation where your husbands are not believers. This must be a very challenging world to live in. And Sam and I were processing the, the question of, okay, so in many contexts, the husband will have, will not be submitting to God. They will not be following God. So I think many wives want to ask, okay, so how can one submit to a man who himself does not submit to God? 
Well, I'd say this, your submission to the man who does not respect or submit to God is a God-ordained picture to this man of what it will look like for him to submit to God. Let me say that again. Or just I'll put this first, I'll put this first Peter three text before you again. Wives be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be one with the conduct of their wives. Your submission to this man who does not respect or submit to God is God's ordained picture and may be the catalyst to bring him to Christ of what it will look like to actually submit to God. So with that said, things that it is not, positively speaking, what is it? I'll just put this definition on it. It is a joyful honoring and affirming of the leadership to which your husband was called. I see it as a joyful honoring and affirming of the leadership to which your husband was called. Even in that definition, we have to then ask, okay, so to the husbands, what is leadership? And most powerfully, I think that leadership is built upon this next sentence in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. I say that because that's where Paul builds it upon in the cross-reference of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. C.S. Lewis once says, yes, you can say in a sense, in the marriage relationship, the man wears the crown, but it's primarily a crown of thorns. Why? Because it is a reflection. His leadership is a reflection of the reflections in Ephesians 5 that the Lord Jesus Christ gave when seeing the needs of his bride, the church, he came and died on the cross wearing a crown of thorns for her. That's weighty. Brandon gave me a very helpful picture. I think I'll share it. You imagine the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus is gathered with the 12 disciples. And he gets down on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. Does anyone in that instant question who is the leader? No. No one questions who is the leader as he washes the feet of his disciples. <laughs> it's a leadership with a crown of thorns. And I think this idea is even built in do not be harsh towards your wife. In Roman times, it was very typical in Roman house in these households for the husbands to be verbally and physically abusive to their wives. It was a normal thing. Paul is saying, no, this is wrong. Do not be harsh towards them. Your vision of leadership, your idea of leadership should be built upon how Christ loves his church. Wow. You have in your mind the dictatorship. You've not processed very much about Christ and his church. Christ loves his church. He died for his church. He will do anything to care for the needs of his church. And I feel the weight of this. I realize that in many ways how hard it is for Sam to follow my leadership is how well I do this. And one of the things that had me pausing when I was processing marriage is the realization that this command was now going to fall upon me to love 
Sam as Christ loved the church. But you know what gives me hope in it? Every morning I pray, I have it on my list to pray, Lord, help me love Sam as Christ loved the church. And you know what gives me hope that I can actually fulfill this lofty command? Is that, is there any prayer that God loves to answer more than the request of a husband to showcase to his wife the sacrificial love of Christ and himself? I am convinced that God wishes to give me his spirit to do that well for my bride. And so there's hope. I must lead with a crown of thorns. Now, a couple practical points that I found helpful from other men. Someone said, the concept of leadership in many ways is like initiative, taking initiative in the home. I think most wives would say they don't want a passive husband in every area of their house. Taking initiative. I ever said a test that you can do is ask the question, who uses the term let's more? Of course, that's a generalization. All can use the term let's. But is the husband taking initiative in let's Go to church. Let's talk about finances. Let's have this conversation. I think, husbands, we are called to take initiative in the things. I think our wives will appreciate that. Vody Bakum put three helpful categories if he thinks the, where the man is supposed to provide, lead. He said the priest, the man in the home is called to be the priest, the provider, and the protector. So the priest, the provider, and the protector the priest is to care for the spiritual needs of his wife and his family, right? Raising your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Or even build, building it upon that Ephesians 5 text where Jesus Christ, it says, he gave himself and washes his bride with the water of the word to present her to God as a spotless church. So also husbands love your wives. Next text. We are called to lead in caring for the spiritual Nurturing. To the provider, put a text on that, First Timothy 6, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith as is worse than an unbeliever. I feel the weight of this. When I go to work, I realize I'm going to work for the Lord God, but also as a husband, my task as the primary breadwinner to make sure Sam has what she needs and is cared for and provision. And lastly, in the role of protector, I like this one. <laughs> I think God has called us to care for our wives, to protect our wives from physical danger. I'm proud to say I took a frog off the front porch this morning. <laughs> Yesterday morning. Stopping, so, fulfilling my task. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But even but seriously, even as well, I think protector would fall into the realm of spiritual protector. Are we called to, are we taking initiative in making sure that in our, what is being the intake of our children, the music, the technology, we're having those conversations. Let's talk about what movies or screen time. I think taking initiative in the physical protection, but also the spiritual protection within the home. Whew. And, well, that's kind of the end of that section. I really, there's so much more I feel like I could say. But I'll have to keep going to the rest. I pray, I really do pray that you're able to apply those general principles and can discuss them more with 
as many godly men and women in the church that we can process these with. So I encourage you to do that, how these apply. So the next section then, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Probably familiar with this. This is a reiteration of the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother in the Lord so that it may go well with you. And Sam and I are going through the Proverbs together. It's striking to me how pretty much in each chapter there's that admonition. Listen to your parents' instruction. Listen to the instruction of your mother. Hear the word of your father. Obey your father. It is just, it permeates the scriptures. This idea of children obeying their parents. Some practical, I would say, just as a personal testimony. Before I was a Christian, I became a Christian about 18. And before then, I really look back and wish I would have submitted a lot more. I wish I would have obeyed a lot more. It's it's a strange phenomenon that the teenager thinks they have the whole world figured out. I can tell you that the time in my life where I thought I knew the most about the world, not when I knew the most, but when I thought I knew the most about the world was about 15. I'm serious. (laughs) But we need to realize before God, and I think the scriptures would have us know that our parents have walked before us. In um, the BBC, in 2005, ran a news article out of Turkey where apparently there was this village and they all keep their sheep together and there was this village and all the sheep were grazing on top of this hill, about 2,000 of them, and one of them took off and jumped over this cliff. And then the other 2,000 sheep literally followed suit. Every one of them, the first 1,000 died on the rocks below, then the other 1,000 were cushioned by the blow with other sheep beneath them. But I, but I want you, seriously, I want you to hear this. That your parents are called by God to shepherd your heart and to shepherd your soul. They have walked before you. They know where the cliffs are in your life. When they take you and they direct you away from something to something else, obey them. In my own life, I can tell, I know when I have done that, it has borne much fruit. I have had much joy in the times I have obeyed to my, my, my obeyed my parents. To put a couple practicals on them. I think in the area of technology is a big one. Many of the things I disagree with my parents on in technology when I was 15, I would do the same now. You may not think your parents understand technology, but they have been through the world and they see the dangers of it. Allow them to shepherd you through technology. Submit to their Decisions on screen time or your intake in certain types of media and technology. Let them guide you. I think I'll mention this one too. There's not really a thus saith the Lord on this one, but I really encourage you to have your parents involved even in your relationships. (laughs) I can speak from a fact that I can speak from another person's testimony that I know when you are falling in love, that's not, there's not a moment when you are less mentally capable of making a rational decision than when you're falling in love. <laughs> and I still remember the first conversation I had after 
desiring to pursue Sam and for marriage was I went to my parents. I talked with them because I wanted their guidance. I'd really encourage that. You know, the second conversation I had was actually with elders. The last conversation I ever had with Elder Bernie was sitting next to him and said, I know you've shepherded Sam Winsher. You know her. I don't know her very well right now, but you know her. You've guided her. You've seen her. What do you think? Thankfully, I got the affirmation from everyone. So here we are. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But I just want you to see the wisdom in that process through that. I realize there's different ways and different family aspects that will make that challenging. But I really encourage you, especially if you have godly parents, process through that one. Next point. Fathers, 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Well, if I feel about my prey grade talking about marriage, this one I've never had a child. But as a preacher of a text, I can put before you what God's word says. As a preacher of God's word. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I think the general sense of that in your leadership and in the role that you have, make sure that you shepherd your children and the discipline in such a way such that the obedience is able to be joyful and such as when they obey you, it can be full. Do it with grace, and I think many ways do it as Christ would. I think one application I would put on it that I've seen exemplified and how helpful it was for me as a child was when you do fail in leadership, acknowledge it and actually apologize for it. There's something really powerful as a child or as someone who's under authority anywhere. When you're struggling to submit to said authority, to have the individual come and say, I failed in this way, but I'm striving to do better. I think that really builds up the ability of the child or someone to actually obey. So I'll say on that, there's definitely many more applications, but keep going. Then slaves, bond servants and masters, we could say slaves and masters. I was just chuckling that this text is full of all the politically incorrect topics. <laughs> but a, a broad view of this, well, actually, I think what I'll do first is before going to the specifics of the text is give a sort of broad view of how the New Testament interacts with slavery. Um, contextually, it was just a normal, it was a reality in the world then, the Roman world. I mean, it was such, it was so pervasive that even in some provinces there would have been more slaves and free people. So really the church was just birthed up in this context. And Paul was writing letters to churches in the provinces that would have had this in their area. And what I see as the basic teaching of the text is that the scripture does not condone slavery, explicitly condone it. It does not explicitly condemn it, but it places very stringent regulations on it. And even as I was meditating, and if you study history on this, I would say this, the values expressed within its regulations lay the framework and the foundations for the eventual abolition of the practice. The values and the dignity given to the slave presented and the regulations put on this practice laid the foundations for the eventual abolition of its of the practice. Let me point to you a couple places even in this specific text. 
bond servants obeying all things your masters according to the flesh. You got to realize it actually is strange for him as a religious speaker to, for Paul in a religious context, actually give like a moral command to his slave as if they have moral value. So even in that, you as an individual have moral dignity in the church of Christ. And then he says this, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord. Your work is to the Lord and knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. In this text, you see the reality that even if one is a slave in Christ, they will receive the reward of the inheritance because they are in Christ. They are part of the equal and holy church of God. Very powerful, clear verses, Galatians 3.28. There is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And I thought to myself, that would be a strange view to the world to realize that those who were slaves and masters were going and taking up the cup together. We're sitting in the preaching of the word together. And then Paul, even writing to Philemon, it says, Free Onesimus the slave that he may come and work with me. Seeing the value that is put on slaves, it is not a surprise to me to realize that historically, many of the leaders of the abolitionist movement pointed to texts like this and were strong evangelical Christians. William Wilberforce, maybe you've heard the name? The, The leading abolitionist in Britain long before the United States abolished slavery. He grew up under the pastoral care of John Newton, evangelical Christian who penned Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. And it was upon his Christian convictions and the regulations and the things that he saw in here that he built his fight for, fight, that he built his fight for slavery. Or against slavery. <laughs> now with that said specifically in the text, seems like these next verses revolve around verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do, do it heartily to the Lord and not to men. And that's flowing out of verse 22, bondservants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart. In other words, Paul is saying, look, you are placed in this context in God's providence. You are a slave. But while you are here, work to the glory of God. Work with integrity. Not when with eye service, not when your master is just watching you, but realize that ultimately you're working for God. Work always before the Lord. Uh, someone wants to define integrity like this for me. It's doing the right thing even when no one is around. Let me make the application here to our own workplaces. Do you work with integrity? Or do you work with eye service as men pleasers? Do you work differently when your boss is watching than when they are not? I was challenged by this the other day. We're not supposed to text to work and I was or a couple months ago I was texting on my phone. And I suddenly realized something that if my boss, Lawrence, was there, I wouldn't be doing it. That is in direct violation to this command. I need to work before the Lord, whether Lawrence is there or not. And he's a very godly brother, so I went and invested to him and he was very gracious about it. <laughs> 
Now also, not only is this command, but I actually see this command itself giving incredible dignity to work. Listen, I don't think I go by a day without yearning to be overseas on the mission field preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And often when I am working, I question the years that I'm spending here. But it is texts like this, that when I am taking glue, I am taking a screw, and I am putting together a headboard or a nightstand on that assembly table, I know that before God it is a worship to Him. Because I can do it to the Lord and not just to men. That gives me joy in the labor that I do. And so I would say this doesn't, and actually I'd even add this. So like when I take that nightstand off of the assembly table, in my mind I can even view it as a sort of gift offering to the Lord when I do it well. Lord, here is this work which I have done for you. I think this can apply to mothers in the home, farmers with the cows, plumbers, electricians. Wherever we are, we can do it heartily to the Lord. See the goodness of vocation. See the goodness of work. See that it can be a worship to our Lord and God. So let's do it well to him. (laughs) And then 24, this was the slaves. But knowing, but I think can apply, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. You can probably imagine that the slaves would not have been able to receive an inheritance But Paul is like, but hold on. You ultimately are working for the Lord. And you are going to receive the reward of the Lord Jesus Christ and the reward of the inheritance in eternity forever that comes through him to his people. That's an amazing text. And realizing today that Yes, you might get a paycheck, but when you work heartily to the Lord, so much beyond that, you're also going to receive a reward of the inheritance for working before Him. Let's have that as our foundational motivation for work. And lastly, masters, give your bondservants what's just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Again, this would be a very jarring concept in that era. Slaves were considered just property. Paul's like, no, justness and fairness. I think often that would mean freeing them. But either way, if you are having slaves care for them in such a way that before God, in context and light of God, there is a justness and fairness. I think this pretty easily applies to work as well. Bosses, do you treat your workers with justness and fairness? I think my work bosses are a tremendous example of it. Two very godly men. I know that they take home a lot less than they could so that they could give us more. I really do believe they exemplify doing this well. They take home what they need and then give the rest. To us, so we can as well. <laughs> So in conclusion, submission to Christ looks like submission in the home. I hope you see the beauty of it rooted all in the Trinity. Rooted as a reflection of Him, showcasing Him to a dying world and doing it to Him for the reward of the inheritance. And so, brothers and sisters, let me leave you with this. 
text. Let us do it all heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, yes, we love your word. And we all long to submit. We all long to clothe ourselves with Christ. I pray that you would help wives. I pray that you would help husbands. I pray that you would help parents and children, bosses and workers, all our governors, governing authorities, all our elders to submit to you. I pray that these ways of submission and our submission to you, our submission to the government, our submission to the elders, submission to husbands, submission to parents, submission to bosses, would be done with joy. Would be done with joy for the glory of your name. Lord, hear us now as we worship you. I pray that we worship from submissive hearts. Take our offering, Lord. May it be a sweet-smelling aroma to me, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.